Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Mm-hmm. Want to take two it on is that? Two two twenty twenty two. There's lots of twos in today's date. It is Wednesday, February the second. It is Groundhog Day. I'm gonna talk about the spiritual implications of that at the top of the next hour. Um, here, uh, good morning, first of all. And if you're new to Faith Radio, if you are new to Mornings with Carmen. Well, we take the headline news, we apply the mind of Christ, we have a little fun together, we have joyful, informative conversations with friends across the country, and so thank you for including me in your day. Wordle, Wordle, which is a game apparently many, many people, millions in fact, are playing. It's a free, downloadable, very simple game app created by a guy named Josh Wardle, for his wife back in October um, as kind of like a, hey, here's uh, a fun way to sort of keep your mind busy during COVID. Well, um, that little gift to his wife is now been sold for some, quote unquote, low seven figures to the New York Times. The New York Times has bought Wordle. It's, um, It's a little game where you guess five letter words in as few attempts as possible. And it has millions of people who play it. So uh, that is, wow, kind of a, I don't really imagine that was probably in Josh Wardle's game plan when he was, you know, making up a game for his wife, that there would be a quote unquote low seven figure offer from the New York Times to buy the game in, well, just a few short months after it launched. And you might be asking yourself, why would the New York Times be buying a game app Uh, Well, actually, the New York Times, if you think about it, has been in gaming for a very, very long time, particularly word games. Mm -hmm. Yep, I'm thinking here of the crossword puzzle. Some people have subscriptions to the New York Times just to get the crossword puzzle. And even more people subscribe online for the same reason. So there you go. Uh, One headline today from the sports page. It is official after 22 seasons and seven Super Bowl victories. Tom Brady is officially retiring from the NFL. He didn't exactly say what's next, but, you know, he has uh, plenty to keep him busy. Um, So I don't think we need to worry much about uh, his future. Although, who will replace him at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is, of course, already hot topic of conversation out there among those who talk about such things. It is February the 2nd, and for those of you who are reading the Bible together with us, you know we are in Acts chapter 2. So let me invite you, if you have not done so already, please sign up and join us reading through the book of Acts during the month of February, one chapter every day. So today is February 2nd. We are reading Acts chapter 2. It leads off uh, with the day of Pentecost, where they're all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
Tongues uh, or divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the disciples speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Hey, Aren't all these guys who are speaking to us Galileans? How is it that we each hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. All right, so as you can imagine, everybody was amazed. They were perplexed. There was a lot of conversation about what might might be going on, and that's when Peter launched into what we have as the very first recorded sermon after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. That is in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Uh, Chapter 2 concludes with verses about the fellowship of the early believers, and I thought that would be a good text for us to discuss today with Daryl Crouch. Daryl and I are talking through how the living Word of God actually becomes living in our lives. And so from the living Word of God to living the Word, looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, next. Joining us again today, Daryl Crouch. He heads up an organization called Everyone's Wilson. You can check it out at everyoneswilson.org. Daryl's also a pastor and friend. Um, Good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Happy uh, Groundhog Day. I'm not sure how to celebrate, but... Exactly. You and I yeah. are going to celebrate by looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, um, and we're going to seek to help us live it out. So I'm going to read it, and then if you'll just launch into some reflection upon it, that would be great. Awesome. So Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were uh, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." There may not be one other place in the scripture where we find in, in one place um, a picture of what it means to live in community in a community of faith known as the local church, as this particular passage you've just read. Uh, this is a this is a snapshot of what what it looks like to live in community, and uh, I think for all of us, um, well, we're in a very mobile society, so we can drive anywhere we want to go. We have mobile 
phones and smart devices and we can travel around the world in the palm of our hand. And um, that, but this word devoted that shows up a few times in this passage uh, carries with it this idea, Carmen, that we're, we're going to sit in this community. Uh, we're going to sit deeply with one another. Uh, we're going to rest with one another. And so we, we like, I think, sometimes the idea of community and friendship. But it, it, this picture is a, a setting where we are taking the long view and the long haul in mind and sitting deeply with people around the Scripture, uh, learning how to, as, as you've mentioned, live this word out uh, out loud and in the, in the everyday life that we live, and um, we do this together. And um, I think one of the things in our mobile society, uh, not to get too far ahead of us, but um, is that uh, it pushes us to the next thing pretty quickly. Uh, we're moving on to the next thing. And um, I think sometimes our souls, as well as just our, um, our hearts, our minds, um, uh, s- community requires us to slow that down and, um, the, and, and to, to take in um, the Word of God, the works of God, the wonders and signs that, they, uh, that the Lord would do in our lives and the work that He does in the lives of people to transform us. Um, that, that requires, a, I think, sometimes a slower pace rather than a faster one. And it requires, a, um, how how's the Scripture say, to, to suffer long with people, forbearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this idea of community uh, that we love to talk about in Christian circles, it really requires something of us that is a counterculture uh, today. You just reminded me uh, in terms of like the slowness of this. You just reminded me of a time I, I, I must have been no more than six. Um, and my grandmother um, was uh, making a, a souffle of some kind. I, I remember none of the details of this. I simply remember that when she put it in the oven, she then sat two stools in front of it and turned the light on. And she said, we're, we're just going to sit here and watch. Now, during that time, she told me all kinds of stories. We sang songs. And mm-hmm. I, of course, grew tempted to do what? I wanted yeah, to open, open. I wanted to open, open the oven. oven, like right. I mean, like yeah. you can see that souffle really, really, really slowly rising, and then it yeah. looks like it's done, right? And she's like, "No, you can't open the door. It's not done yet. It's not. It's not fully cooked." And 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 she she bought all this time, right, sitting with me while we were yeah. watching this thing bake. And um and as you're saying, you know, as you're talking about or reflecting on this resting and sitting together, and um. And allowing God to use that time in ways that are very, very unseen to, you know, to complete the good work that he's begun in us. Um, and we get very, very impatient and we want to, you know, open the door and move on. But the, the souffle, trust me, will collapse if you do that. Yeah, no question about it. All right, Daryl, let's, um, let's, um, let's continue this conversation about uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 in just a moment. Why don't you read it again um, while, we, um, while we step away for just a moment? What does it mean to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching? What does it mean to devote yourself to fellowship? What does it mean um, to live in awe 
What does it mean um, to be together with others who believe and have things in common with one another? What does that mean as we live out the faith today? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Daryl Crouch and I are talking about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If you have not done so already, let me really encourage you to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Join us in reading through the Bible. We are in the book of Acts during this month of February. We're doing a chapter a day, so it is day two. We are in chapter two of the book of Acts. Um, So, Daryl, when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching— I want to sort of parse some of this out. Mm -hmm. What does that look like today for Christians to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Yeah, so these five functions of the church you see in this, and one of those is discipleship or teaching. And and in the context of a local church, we sit under the teaching of God's Word. Our pastor teaches, preaches. Uh, Our elders teach and preach. Uh, We may uh, have a responsibility in small groups, perhaps to teach the Bible. I think in in, in a big picture uh, perspective, it's that we uh, are people of the book, that uh, and you do a great job of calling us to that, that we are people of the Bible. In a practical sense, at the more granular level, daily level and weekly level, is that we are um, saturating our lives with the Bible and the teaching of the Scripture. And uh, everything else flows out of that, by the way, and we could have a long conversation about that. But uh, my, my uh, uh, habits of walking in the Word and uh, receiving the Word of God as it's teach, taught to me and preached to me um, in my community of faith and letting that uh, ruminate in my life, and I pick up the Bible on um, uh, the next morning as well, and I have my time in, in God's Word, and um, I reflect on um, the movement of God in my church family through the teaching and preaching of God's Word, and I began to obey it. I heard someone <clears throat> say, and preachers hear this sometimes when, when church members want to leave and go to another church or they're disgruntled, and they'll say something like, um, I just need deeper preaching. Well, we, we certainly need theological preaching. There's no doubt about that. So if that's not the case, uh, that you're receiving gospel-centered, you know, theologically-driven preaching, then that may be a problem. But uh, what most of us need is not deeper preaching. We just need deeper obedience. And mm-hmm. so it's really our response to the teaching of God's Word that's our, res- that's our responsibility. And so in the context of um, Acts 2, 42 through 47, we find a people gathered around God's Word together growing in its understanding of God's Word, and it's in, in their um, obedience and living out their faith in their context, which was, by the way, very adverse to the gospel and the public square, and um, that we learned to, uh, to, to read God's Word, to understand God's Word, uh, to apply God's Word in its um, you know, contextual and historical, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and a hermeneutic that makes, you know, that's, that's faithful and uh, that we're living that out together. I think another thing, Carmen, and we can, again, uh, talk about a lot of things here, but w- one of the things that we've, we, we see happening is that I learn obedience in a community of faith who is, is hungry for the word of God. 
Um, I can certainly and I should walk with God and His Word on my own and devotionally, but um, it's in this this context is in a community of faith where in our minds we would or in our context we would have our Bibles open together in the same room, listening and uh, and and receiving the Word of God, and then leaving together, you know, working it out together, and then leaving to obey the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really allowing the Bible to read us in addition That's to right. our reading the Bible. Um, and so I think that when we talk about being devoted to the apostles' teaching, I think for me, that's a part of that, right? There's a, um, the devoted part isn't just devoted in study of content. The devotion is in a willingness to allow my life to be conformed by one degree of glory to another, uh, to who Christ is. And and I come to know that in a deeper and deeper way, not only through my study of Scripture, but its um, its application in community with other fellow believers. Talk with us yeah. about, um, you mentioned there's five things. There's five things in this passage. So why don't you tell us what those five are, and maybe we'll, um, we've got time to reflect on at least one more of them. Yeah, a teaching, and uh, we've talked about fellowship, a worship, um, a ministry uh, in the context of, of community is is a part of that, mm-hmm. but um, uh, worship and evangelism, and so mm-hmm. there's this there's this sense that um, we're in this thing together, and so we're going to share life together, and it's going to involve the spiritual that we we uh, worship, and we uh, see God work in our lives in transforming ways, mm-hmm. we minister to one another. And through one another, they distributed their possessions. They took care of each other. So there's this ministry. Uh, they um, were in fellowship, this idea of koinonia, uh, and they uh, saw people saved. And so there was um, there was evangelism in the way that our context, we would say that the word went forth with power and people responded to the gospel because of the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, the devotion that they sh- that they had you know, not only to Bible study and to fellowship, um, but the devotion that they had to prayer has been, uh, that's been a convicting point for me. Um, I I have come to really love and appreciate the extended period of time that our congregation spends in prayer in the context of uh, congregational worship. And the, the depth of those prayers and the uh, incredible number of um, situations, you know, that are lifted up to God in the context of of congregational prayer. And I'll confess that there have been periods in my life when prayers during worship sounded like, well, that's sort of the trigger that moves from this portion of worship to this portion of worship, or this is a, you know, this is the way we start and end. These are the, um, you know, these are the appropriate bookends uh, to a church meeting or a worship service. Um, But this devotion to prayer puts, uh, I just think it puts life in context um, or in perspective. It puts everything where it belongs, which is, you know, at the foot of the cross and in the hands of God. It's a critical aspect to our worship, and we have unfortunately used it as a transitional kind of um, um, tool in a worship setting uh, too often. But I think one of the things I think is happening, Carmen, and you you may have your uh, pulse on this better than me, but that 
uh, there is a desperation that's growing um, mm-hmm. in our souls. Uh, we we understand uh, maybe a pandemic and social unrest and political uh, adversity and all these things. Um, I think uh, people, uh, we, we become very arrogant or very self-sufficient, so we think, with technology and and affluence and so on. But these issues that have borne down on us over the last few years, I think there's a, I sense, and as I'm talking to other churches and pastors, the ministry of prayer in their congregations are growing. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked with a, pa- a friend of mine, he's a pastor in our area. They, they've been meeting uh, every morning at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., excuse me, for worship, have 50 people showing up four days a week. And their Wednesday nights are filled with people coming for prayer meeting. Um, there's a there is a, a holy awe in that, but there's also a holy desperation for God to move in that. And so, fasting and prayer and, uh, and integrating uh, that and as a as a as a part of public or congregational worship, um, I sense that's growing among congregations because. We have understand how needy we are. And in this context, in the early church, they had no question about that. They understood how vulnerable they were and how much they mm-hmm. needed the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, there weren't any uh, cultural institutions set up to support them. Um, All right, we have to leave it right there. Um, Daryl, as always, thank you so very much. Hey, thank you to my friend uh, texting back and forth today from Iowa. We're going to be praying for you and your church in transition, praying for God's uh, provision. Be encouraged. Yes, this is a time when God is stretching us and inviting us to trust him uh, in his provision and leading. Amen, amen, and amen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. You may have heard the president's comments yesterday relative to who he is considering to fill the vacancy, which will be created on the U.S. Supreme Court when Justice Stephen Breyer actually retires. So I didn't want you to miss this one reference that the president made to the Ninth Amendment. Um, Yesterday, in his comments to the nation, he said, you know, there's always renewed national debate every time a person is nominated to the Supreme Court. He talked about it. uh, The Constitution, listen to this, the Constitution is always evolving slightly in terms of additional rights or the curtailing of rights. He said it's always an issue. There are several schools of thought in terms of judicial philosophy. And then he continued saying uh, that he's looking for a candidate with character, the qualities, um, you know, that a judge should have. Um, And then he said, as well as a judicial philosophy Um, that is more one that suggests that there are enumerated rights to the Constitution and all the amendments mean something, including the Ninth Amendment, which should have given every one of us pause to say, well, what is the Ninth Amendment and what does it say? So the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others uh, retained by the people. So what does that mean? 
Well, the Ninth Amendment has been used um, in voting rights efforts in the past. It's also been used to um, expand the understanding of access to abortion. So um, what is a judicial philosophy and how do you read the Constitution and interpret it? A parallel for Christians is the is the question about how do you read the Bible and how do you approach it? Is the Bible um, the authoritative word of God uh, in which God has said what he has said, and therefore the Bible cannot mean something today that it did not mean when it was written? Or is the Bible the living word in such a way that it has an ever-changing, ever-evolving meaning based on our life, based on what we bring to it, based on our interpretive keys and the lens through which we look? So when it comes to your approach to to Scripture, you are um, either an originalist or an evolutionist in the same way that those, uh, you know, on the bench uh, are have a judicial philosophy that is either originalist or evolutionist. And so I think this gives us an opportunity as Christians in the culture to to be honest about um, interpretation, particularly the interpretation of Scripture, but also, yes, the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. Applying the Bible to life, that is what Jim Dennison does every day at the Dennison Forum. He has joined us recently to talk about his brand new book, The, Co- the Coming Tsunami. Today, he and I are going to uh, talk around a number of headlines of the day and bring the mind of Christ to bear. That's up next. Dr. Jim Dennison is back. He's a cultural scholar, pastor, author. He helps people every single day respond biblically and redemptively to the vital issues of our day. You can find him at denisonforum.org. Jim, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. So glad to be with you today. Thanks for the privilege. Oh, absolutely. So um, you have given me this framework through which I'm now, uh, it's like a, a a lens through which I'm now reading virtually everything. So in the coming tsunami, um, you know, you talk about postmodernism, the sexual revolution, critical theory, and secularism as these four cultural quakes that have shifted the ground beneath our feet. And so as I'm looking at headlines and as I'm reading things now, I'm like, oh, well, that's evidence of the sexual revolution and its effects, or, oh, that's evidence of postmodernism and its effects. So I just wanted to say thank you for um, providing that framework and lens. And for those of you listening who may have missed our prior conversation about Jim's brand new book, let me encourage you uh, to go to MyFaithRadio.com and listen to that podcast as well. The book is The Coming Tsunami, and it's it's literally available everywhere. Um, so, Jim, let's um, let's jump to a headline of the day and let's help uh, help one another apply the mind of Christ here. So, I'm reading a headline in the Wall Street Journal that there is uh, a desire by some to dump the character standard for baseball's Hall of Fame. What's going on here? Yeah, thank you for that, and thank you so much for your kindness as regards the book and the format inside all of it. It's been helping me as well to kind of frame things as we understand these. So Faye Vincent is a retired uh, commissioner of baseball. So he's got this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, dump the character standard, as you said, because Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds didn't make the Hall of Fame. They just recently, on their 10th attempt, were not voted in, and so unless they're voted in later as old-timers, as they say, a senior deal, they won't be in because of alleged steroid use. And Faye Vincent is making the argument that, look, we're 
way past this now. We're in a place where players should be evaluated only for what they do on the field as players, that as a culture, we don't know how to measure character anymore. We should get past, as he says, uh, thinking you have to be honorable to be honored. And we should only measure what a person does actually on the field. They didn't break any laws at the time. There were no restriction against steroid use at the time. And so he's making a postmodern argument to put this in the context of tsunami. You have your truth. I have my truth. You have no right to force your beliefs on me any more than I can force my beliefs on you. There is no objective truth, which is, of course, an objective truth claim. But it's a postmodern argument in the context of tsunami and where we are as a culture today. And I want to highlight the comment about, you know, character not really mattering um, anymore or this uh, even this entire concept of honor. When I think about um, what makes for a hero, a person, you know, after whom we might want to pattern some portion of our lives, I think character matters. But then I actually look at kind of the devolution even of even of quote unquote heroes like Batman. Like I look at the way that Batman has become a person uh, who lacks all kinds of character in terms of his portrayal on screen. And I think to myself, that's not the Batman I knew back in the day. It's a great analogy. One of the reasons I believe watching popular culture is so important is because if it's popular, it tells you something about the culture. People that make a living making movies know who we are and where we are. So we ask ourselves, why are superhero movies so popular today in a day of pandemic, in a day of all the fears and the challenges of the day? But why are they so flawed compared to where they used to be? And again, we're seeing ourselves in the on the big screen. We're seeing ourselves projected into these characters, and we're therefore feeling better about ourselves because I know I'm flawed. He's flawed. I don't feel judged by him uh, against a standard that I no longer believe even exists. It's postmodern relativism in Batman. You're seeing the same thing with the Superman character in really the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You're seeing the degree to which they're reflecting this idea that standards are old-fashioned, as Faye Vincent says. And now we just need to live in this postmodern world. Tolerance, with a capital T, is truth today. And we just need to get over it, is what I think they're Mm. telling us. Mm. One more thing from this um, headline that stood out to me in this story is the use of the the word saints. I mean, that caught my attention. Um, Mm. You know, none of us are—these guys aren't saints, and, and none of us are saints either. And I thought to myself, there's a huge difference between saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God— and none of us are saints, because that, for for those of us who are in Christ, we are saints. And that's the thing he doesn't understand. You know, that's the thing the secular culture really doesn't get about what Christianity offers. I don't really believe bumper sticker theology is typically all that useful, but I like the saying, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. The idea that, no, I'm not perfect, I won't be until I'm in heaven, but Christ is making me more than I was. He's making me different than I was and better than I was. And so really what we're offering you as beggars helping beggars find bread is the light that is changing me because I know it's what your heart needs as well. And so there's really this balance, isn't there, that on the one hand, we want to live in a way that honors our Lord. We want to be light that reflects the light of Christ. But on the other, we want to say to people, look, this is humility here, because I'm just as broken as you are. I'm just as fallen as you are, just as temptable as you are. And so let's do this in the spirit of grace. Speaking the truth in love ought to be our mantra. Mm, Amen. 
All right, let's um, let's jump to another headline. This one is about church membership. I actually got it out of your local paper there in yes, Dallas, <laughs> um, and it's about church membership attendance and participation rates, which continue to decline. And it's a conversation about why people are leaving the church or the church leaving them. Tell us about this story. Yeah, it's interesting. So Mark Hamilton's a professor out in Abilene, which is west of Dallas, Abilene Christian University. There's a series here. I've written for it myself in the past in the Dallas Morning News called Living Our Faith. It's an opinion commentary. And so Mark Hamilton is making the argument here that with the rise of the so-called nuns, those that have no religious commitment, those that say that they're not members of a church, we're seeing people leaving the church, but he's making the argument that's in large part because the church is leaving us. And really he's making an argument against evangelicalism, against what he's claiming to be right-wing political Christianity. He's arguing that we focus too much on things the Bible doesn't focus on. He makes a specific argument, for instance, that the Bible nowhere condemns abortion, but it says a great deal about poverty Mm. and about discrimination, and we get it reversed in the way that right-wing evangelicals are doing this. And so, in other words, he's making the claim, you don't have to leave God to leave that church that we need to be a new church that is following the Jesus of the Bible and that right-wing Christians have gotten it wrong. And this rise of the nuns is in many ways an indictment, not on Christ, but on that version of the church. And I, of course, have a very different understanding of what's (laughs) happening uh, as I see the devolution and even the destruction of every one of the former mainline denominations. And I look at those denominations and I say the Episcopal Church, the UCC, the ELCA, the PCUSA, now the United Methodist Church, they have so undermined their own foundations um, in terms of biblical authority and morality um, that, that people who have left those denominations for more conservative or more evangelical um, churches, uh, they are the ones who say, I'm not actually leaving my church. My church left me. This argument, when I saw the headline, I thought it was going to be about that. And then I discovered, oh, no, it's quite the reverse. So I think that in terms of the conversations Christians are having about um, the church, it, it We're in a day, Jim, when I think that Christians need to stand up and say what the church is and what it isn't and be sure we're in one that is what it's supposed to be. Exactly. So he's got the argument exactly backwards. As you look at the statistics here, the nuns are not leaving conservative churches or evangelical churches. They're growing. Glenn Stanton's book, The Myth of the Dying Church, makes that exceedingly clear that evangelical churches have grown over the last 20 years. It's the mainline denominations, the very ones that he is saying really are what the church ought be, are the ones that are declining and dying. He's got the argument statistically exactly backwards. Jesus, in Matthew 16, as we know, founded the church in front of the gates of hell. I take people there every time I go to Israel. It's an actual cave that used to have a spring before 1837 when an earthquake filled it in that went so deeply into the earth they couldn't measure its depths. So they called it the gates of the underworld or the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. There was a temple in front of it to the worship of Caesar. Next to that, a temple to the worship of Zeus. Horrific bestiality, horrible things done there. And it's right there that Jesus brought his followers, not the temple in Jerusalem, not the synagogue in Capernaum. And he says, it's right here. I'm founding my church. And pointing at that, he said, the gates of hell will not withstand its assault. That's the church. The real church is the body of Christ proclaiming fearlessly the gospel of Jesus and calling people into a redemptive relationship with him. That's the church that cannot die, that will never die, because it's the church of Jesus, not us. 
it's his. All right, we're having a worldview conversation with Jim Dennison, and next um, he's going to tell us whether or not we're really each just a cloud. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum, his latest book, The Coming Tsunami, uh, absolutely well worth your investment. It will help you understand postmodernism, the sexual revolution, critical theory, and secularism, which really are the four cultural quakes that have moved the ground beneath our feet um, and feet <laughs> beneath our feet and, and really um, creating the instability that you're experiencing in the culture today as a Christian. And so a really, really helpful, not only assessment of what's going on, but also a prescription for what you and I can do as Christians in the culture today. So, Jim, uh, I want to read just a few lines from this piece posted at yahoo.com. It is entitled, A Cloud Never Dies, A California Monastery Mourns Mindfulness Advocate Tick Not Han. Uh, The low, peaceful notes of a bell floated over the Deer Park Monastery in the mountains of Escondido, where hundreds of people gathered over the past few days to honor the beloved Zen teacher and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, He died uh, at the age of 95. He never lived at the mountain monastery that he founded in the year 2000, but he visited many times. Devotees say they can still see their teacher in the rustling of the wind through the oak trees in the form of a rock where he once gave a talk. Dotted throughout the property are small wooden signs painted in his distinctive calligraphy with gentle reminders to live fully joyfully in the moment. As I read this, Jim, um, and ultimately, you know, makes the this piece makes the argument um, that uh, because he was a cloud, he will never die. Um, and I, I thought as I read this, the danger of syncretism in our culture is so ripe because people would read these calligraphy signs, I have arrived, I am home, or peace is every step, enjoy breathing, and they would think, I can integrate that into my Christianity. That's exactly the, the lure of syncretism, isn't it? It's a beautiful metaphor. A cloud never dies, the cloud becomes rain, and then it falls on the leaves, or it falls on the grass, and so now I'm in the grass, or I'm in the leaves, or that sort of thing. It reminded me when I read the article of a man years ago. We were actually out knocking on doors, inviting people to our church in my first pastorate, and that knocked on the doors, individual came to the door, we were talking together, he said, well, I don't believe in hell. He said that as though that changed whether hell exists. It's Mm -hmm. like me saying, I don't believe in Australia, so therefore there is no Australia. But we're in a culture that says truth is what I believe it is. Your truth is what you believe it is. My truth determines reality, so I am a cloud, and therefore I am a cloud. We don't measure what we claim by any objective truth, so syncretism becomes an available and very attractive alternative. I can pick from this, I can pick from that. It's really a buffet spirituality, isn't it? Where I can Mm -hmm. pick this meal and this salad and this dessert and put all this on my plate. And if you as a church or as a radio station or me as an apologist will offer me all of these tools and these options, I can assemble them as I wish, and I'll be happier for it, and then you'll prosper as, as well. It's the syncretistic lie that is close enough to the truth to be really appealing. I have heard someone say, well, you know, that's all fine for you that you're doing what you're doing and you believe what you believe, but this works for me. Mm -hmm. There's also this weird pragmatism in American quote-unquote Christianity today. 
There really is. In fact, pragmatism, when I teach the history of, the, of philosophy, I describe as uniquely American. It's our one kind of contribution to the history of Western thought is the idea. You get it, William James, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, uh, John Dewey. The idea of truth is what works. Well, for who? And to what end? And to what purpose? I, for instance, have been interested in radical Islam for years. I taught in the Muslim, uh, lived in the Muslim world at one point. I've taught uh, world religions for 30 years. 9/11 is a very cohesive worldview expression of the belief that the West has been attacking Islam since the Crusades. The Quran requires Muslims to defend Islam. So attacking uh, in so-called innocent Americans is a defense of Islam required by the Quran. That's their truth. If one looks at Mein Kampf, one understands Hitler's truth. If all truth is personal, does that make the Holocaust just Hitler's truth and 9-11 just Al-Qaeda's truth? But that nonetheless is where this postmodern relativism has brought us. We have no measurement against a north on the compass. We don't believe in the law of gravity. We believe in our own gravity as we wish because we're our own planet. And Dr. Phil would ask, how's that working for us? Hmm. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up Dr. Phil. <laughs> so Matt Walsh had this conversation on Dr. Phil, um, particularly about transgenderism. And it was actually very, very, it was, you know, it was about identity and, and how you self-identify. And the person was unable to answer Matt's very, very direct um, and logical questions. If you self-identify in this way, then surely there's a definition of that term. So this individual identified as a woman and Matt simply asked, what is a woman? And the person said, well, I can't answer that question. And so you can see how, you know, very quickly the the conversation um, uh, turned on the truth. Well, that's now Hulu has now removed the episode because so many people found it so offensive that Matt Walsh would ask such a direct question you know, and and so I just I'm so glad you brought up Dr. Phil because I didn't know how else I was going to work that into the conversation. And look, you gave me the perfect opportunity. We glad do. Well, we do seem to want to conform even even what's available online. We want it to conform to whatever the prevailing delusion is of the day. And and I think when we talk about accessing truth that is one of the challenges we face as Christians today, because there is uh, an intentional limiting of true truth out there because the delusion in the culture is so strong, particularly in the area of gender identity and sexuality. No doubt. We can curate our news on a level we never could before. I'm 63. I'm old enough to remember in Houston, Texas, where you have three channels. Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Couldn't really choose your news. You got one newspaper, three news stations. That was it. Now I can curate my news to listen only to that which agrees with my opinions. I also, with a cell phone, can be my own publishing house and can communicate my opinions to the world. So in a postmodern relativistic world that says truth is my truth, truth is your truth, no such thing as truth, we can actually reinforce these opinions as our truth on a level we've never been able to do before. So that's why Christians have to step into this space and demonstrate the relevance of my truth in such a transforming way You'll see the difference Jesus makes in my life, assault and light, in such a powerful way with the influence God's entrusted to me, that you'll be attracted to my truth as your truth, and that's how you will meet the truth. This is a perfect opportunity for Christians to be first-century believers, go back into the culture of salt and light, demonstrate the difference Jesus is making in my life, speaking the truth in love, 
and that relevance of Jesus in our hearts will draw people to himself. There really is a God-shaped emptiness in us. Our hearts really are restless till they rest in him. God really will, truly will use your light to bring people to the light today. Amen. Amen and amen. As always, Jim Dennison, thank you so much. You guys can find Jim at denisonforum.org. You can sign up for his daily email. We'll get that kind of teaching each and every day. Jim, as always, thank you. Carmen, what a privilege. God bless. Likewise. We'll be right back. So some, uh, there's one headline that caught my attention this morning that I thought to myself, well, that's a very provocative headline and everybody should write like that. Would you take free land in rural America? Would you take free land in rural America? That's the headline. In the midst of a national housing shortage um, and housing crisis across the country, towns in Kansas are giving away free land and ultra cheap houses. Um, and, you know, p- giving people the opportunity to either start anew or, you know, reinvent themselves. Uh, and so when you when you think about the opportunities that exist in the United States of America, um, particularly in rural America, I want you to just consider for a moment, would you take free land in rural America? And if you took it, would you know what to do with it? Um, would you know how to plant a garden and cultivate the soil and bring forth a harvest? Do you know how to do it in your own life? Are you sowing seeds of peace and are you delivering unto God a harvest of righteousness today? Let God uh, plow you today. Let him sow his word deeply into your life. And yes, let him bring forth unto himself a harvest of genuine righteousness. And uh, if you're looking for a house and you're looking for a fresh start, you might want to check out what's going on in Kansas. Just Google, would you take free land in rural America and get all the all the info on that? There you go. That's a uh, that's a interesting conversational opportunity with those in your community today. We got all kinds of opportunities to talk uh, next in the next hour of mornings with Carmen. We're going to talk about grandparenting, among other things. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.